chapter 13. The Gospel of John in chapter 13. If you need a Bible, there's one on your table. The red Bible, and, uh, or maroon Bible. And uh, that's the same translation that I'll be teaching from. I am using the New King James Bible. That's the Bible that Mr. Criswell taught from, so keeping that tradition in this class. And I had someone come up to me earlier and ask uh, if I wanted to say a word about Baltimore. Because I'm from Baltimore. And all I can say is that Baltimore hasn't changed since I left it in, uh, at the end of 1982. So it's uh, just exactly the way it was. And, Always been a troubled city, and if you've ever watched the uh, cable show, uh, what was it called? The Wire. The Wire. <clears throat> I haven't seen The Wire, but I heard that uh, it's very accurate. Anybody see The Wire? A couple of you seen The Wire. Well, if you've seen it, you never forget it. So. And you would know you wouldn't want to live in Baltimore. Is that true? That is true. That's right. Okay. So anyway, we're in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 13, and chapter 13 through 17. Uh, makes up a, an entire section of this gospel, and it covers one day in Jesus' life. The scene is the Last Supper. The meal proper, meaning the eating of the meal, is over, and now Jesus is teaching the apostles. He's washed their feet. Judas has left the scene, betrayed Jesus. And now Jesus begins to, his last teaching to the remaining 11 apostles. And in this section that we're going to cover today, and we're going to begin in verse 31, you're going to see verses that you recognize, such as, Let not your heart be troubled. Uh, in my Father's house are many mansions. And uh, you're going to discover that maybe what you thought these verses meant, that's not what they mean. In fact, when you get through, when we, as we go through this passage, you're going to discover that the apostles themselves were confused when Jesus taught this. So it amazes me when Christians right today have the answer. I know what it means. Well, maybe you don't know what it means. You know? And uh, in fact, in this section you'll see that Peter chirps up and he says something. Of course, he makes a fool of himself. And then, and then uh, Thomas uh, says something and he makes a fool of himself. And then a third apostle, Philip, chirps up and makes a fool of himself. They have no idea what Jesus is talking about. It's like he's talking to the wall. Okay? So, let's see if these verses mean what you think they mean. Okay? So, Jesus with the remaining 11 apostles, look at verse 31. He says, so when he, John, the apostle John is writing, he says, so when he had gone out, that's Judas Iscariot, he leaves. Jesus said to the remaining 11, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Now, what in the world does that mean? Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Well, there are several words, key words in that verse, and the first key word is the word glorified. And it comes from the, the root word of the Greek, doxa, from which we get our word doxology. And it means honor or praise. And when you sing the doxology, how does it start off? Praise God, right? So that's what the word doxa means. So Jesus, first of all, says, now the Son of Man is going to be praised or honored, and so is 
God, the Father, going to be praised and honored. Okay. Now, the second key term in verse 31 is the term Son of Man. Do you see that? That's how Jesus identifies himself. The apostles call him Lord, they call him Christ, they call him Master, they call him Rabbi, but when Jesus identifies himself, he calls himself Son of Man. A term that is found in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 7 and verse 13. That's how Jesus identifies himself. He says, I am the same as the Son of Man that Daniel saw in his vision that's found in Daniel 7. And in Daniel's vision, he sees one like the Son of Man who goes up into heaven and meets God. And there God gives him dominion, number one, and glory, number two. You see that word glory in that verse? Glory, and he gives him a kingdom. And that's how, and you just remember that, because you're going to see those concepts coming up again in this verse. So that's how Jesus identifies himself, is that son of man who's going to go up, who's going to receive a kingdom, and he's going to receive glory, and he's going to receive authority. Now, third concept you see in that verse is the phrase, in him. Do you see that? Now the son of man is glorified, he's praised and honored, and God is glorified where? In him, in the son. Uh, now, what does that mean? It means that God derives His glory from those on earth. People praise God on earth because of what they see in Jesus. Jesus' obedience brings glory to God. Jesus says, I only say what God the Father tells me to say. I only do what God the Father tells me to do. And then goes around and heals people, raises people from the dead, and God gets the glory. God is glorified in Him. Okay? Now, there's a fourth word that you need to know in verse 31, and that's the word now. Look at that. Now the Son of Man is glorified. Okay? This is a word that deals with time. Right now the Son is being honored. Right now the Son is being praised. Uh, when you see the word now, that should cause you to think about another phrase that's been found throughout John's Gospel. And you know, you've seen it seven times, where Jesus says, my hour is not yet come. Do you remember that phrase? My hour has not yet come. His hour to what? To die has not yet come. But guess what? Now is the time. <laughs> and it's going to be in his death where he receives praise and glory. And it's in his death that God gets praise because Jesus is obedient to God even unto the point of what? Death. And so... Uh, Jesus is going to die, and his glory and his death cannot be separated. Okay? So that's how he starts off this little discussion that he has with the disciples. Now that's what that verse means right there. Do you think if you were sitting there, you would have gotten it? I don't think so. You know, it takes a lot of work to figure out what it even means. Then look in verse 32, he says, If God is glorified in him, and he is, God will also glorify him and himself and glorify him immediately. So now this is basically a repeat of verse 31. He says God is glorified in him, that's Jesus, and guess what? God will also glorify him. God will glorify him in himself, meaning God will glorify Jesus in, through the Father. 
because what the Father does is going to bring glory to Jesus. Now, you know, this is a, these are hard concepts, but these this talks about a reciprocal praise and honor that the Father gives the Son and the Son gives the Father, and people praise God and the Son because of what is happening. So, what this all amounts to is that Jesus is going to die. Okay? And we know, even though it doesn't say in this verse, we know that after he dies, eventually he's going to return to the Father. Okay? In fact, doesn't it say that God will glorify Jesus? Does it say that in verse 2? Does it say he will? God will also glorify him? Does it say that? It does? So will means what? Future. Right now, Jesus is going to be glorifying his death, but God will in the future glorify him. Well, when's all that going to happen? Well, it probably happened after he's raised from the dead and he goes back to the Father and all these kinds of things. So there's a lot going on in these verses. Okay? But now what happens in verse 33, we have a switch of focus. And the focus switches from Jesus to the apostles, to the disciples. And Jesus gives them instructions. Okay? He wants to tell them how to live once he's dead and gone. Okay? So that's what these next verses are about. So look at verse 33. He says, little children, that's sort of a term of endearment, I shall be with you a little while longer. Well, how long will Jesus be with them? This is Friday night, uh, Saturday, Thursday night. When does he die? He dies on Friday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So he's only going to be with them for maybe another <laughs> 12 hours or so. He's just a little while will I be with you, he says in verse 33. And then look what he says. And what's going to happen then? He's going to die, right? And then look what he says. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So he says, when I'm, I'm only going to be here a little longer, and then you're going to seek me. And you know what? You're not going to be able to find me. Now, remember when the Romans killed Jesus, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. Do you remember what the Romans said? Maybe they stole his body. They, they, were, they went to the tomb, and guess what? They had guards around the tomb, and suddenly they seek him, and what? He's not there. And on the resurrection morning, Mary goes to the tomb, and she sees a couple men sitting on stones, and she says, what? Where did you put him? Where did you, you take him? Look, I'm only going to be here a little while. I'm going to die, and then you're going to seek me. And guess what? You're not going to be able to find me. Okay? So, and then, so it could mean that he's going to be resurrected. The tomb's going to be empty. Or it could be that he's referring to his ascension. Remember when he ascends 40 days later? What Acts 1 said? It says the apostles stood looking up. And the angel said, Why are you standing gazing into heaven? Well, we're trying to seek him. Where is he? Where is he gone? So it could be referred to that. But it definitely refers to his death and possibly his resurrection and his ascension. Okay? But either way, death is involved. So he's a little children. I shall be with you a little longer and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, watch this, where I am going you cannot 
come. Now, where is he going? First of all, where is he going? Where is he going to go first? He's going to go, right, he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die. Now, if that's what he means, and I think it is, because you'll see when we get through here, he says in verse 33, where I go, you cannot come. Now watch this. So I'm going to go somewhere, and guess what? He might mean I'm going to die, I'm going to go to heaven, whatever he means. It's a little confusing, but guess what? Wherever I'm going, guess what? You can't come. Well, what should we do then, Lord? Well, I've got something for you to do. So look what he tells them to do. In verse 33. So now, I say to you, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Because I've loved you. That you also love one another. So Jesus says, I have something for you to do. Here are the instructions. Once I'm gone and you can't find me and you can't go where I am, I want you to do something. I want you to love one another. And he calls it a new commandment. You see that? In the Old Testament, why is it new? Weren't people told in the Old Testament to love your neighbor or what? As yourself? What makes this new? Because he doesn't say here to love your neighbor as yourself. He just says to love one another. And he says, do it like I did it. That means love each other above yourself. More than yourself. Not as yourself. More than yourself. So Jesus dies for us. So, number one, it's a new commandment because it has a new dimension. That we're to love each other above ourselves. Without regard to ourselves. It's also a new commandment in verse 34 because this commandment has to do with the new age. The new covenant that's being established through death. The old commandment to love one another as yourself came under the old covenant, came under the law. This is a new covenant for a new age, for a new, a new, a new commandment for a new age or a new covenant. Look at verse 35. And by this, and this is a verse we all know, by this, by what? That you love one another. All people will know that you're my disciples if you have loved one for another. That's the identity marker of a Christian. This is the proof that you're a Christian. This is the proof that you're born again. This is the proof that you're a member of God's kingdom. That you love one another. It's not, here's how all men will know that you're my disciples, that you believe in the virgin birth. Is that what it says? Does it say that? That you believe in the Baptist faith and message. Does it say that? That you have a certain theory of communion. Does it say that? That you hold to only one way of baptism. Does it say that? No. What's the evidence that you're a believer? That you're a disciple of Jesus? That you love one another. John in his epistle says, He who is born of God loves. That's the one evidence that we are God's children, that we're born again. Okay? So, Jesus says two things. If I would summarize these verses, number one, I'm going somewhere where you can't go. I'm going to die. And you're not going to die right now. So, in the meantime, I've got something for you to do. Love one another. 
So I would say that's very important, right? Love one another. So Peter opens his mouth. And when he does, he finds his foot in it. It's not unusual, is it? So look what Peter says. Peter said to him, Lord, what a great new commandment. Let me get at loving one another. Is that what he said? No. Lord, where are you going? It's like everything Jesus just said here has gone in one ear and out the other. He's not concerned about loving one another. He's curious. It's like us. Look, what, what should we be doing? Loving one another. But we want to, when's the Lord coming? They just want to know, where are you going? We have all these kinds of curious questions. Here's what we're supposed to do. Peter doesn't pay any attention to it. He's more concerned about where is Jesus going. Okay. So it shows he doesn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. Right? If he knew where Jesus was going, he wouldn't have to answer this question. Now if I said to you, where is Jesus going? And David said, well, he's going to heaven. That means David knows more than Peter. Because guess what Peter says? Where are you going? Jesus said, I'm going somewhere. And Peter says, David says, well, he's going to heaven. And I bet you every one of us in the room would say that that's what Jesus meant, right? But obviously Peter doesn't understand that, or he wouldn't have said what? Where are you going? See? So he has to say, where are you going? He has to ask. Okay? Uh, obviously he doesn't think heaven, or he wouldn't have said, where are you going? Right? I hope you think that. So look at Jesus' response. At the end of verse 36. Jesus answered to him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Does Jesus tell him where he's going? No, he doesn't tell him where he's going. All he says is, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But you shall follow me afterwards. Now, if Jesus is talking about death, just put that in there for a second. Where I am going, you can't go. I'm going to die. You can't go there now. You can't die now, but guess what? You will die, and guess what? In 64 AD, Peter does die. He dies being crucified upside down. See? So it could be that. It could be going to heaven. We don't know what it, where Jesus is going, because at this point, what? Ten Coleman. But we have all these assumptions, right? Okay, you don't like this. That's just the way it is. Okay. So. so I think he's referring to his death at this point. At least that's as far as I know. I know what's going to happen next according to the story that he's going to die. Now look at verse 37. Peter decides to put his foot in his mouth one more time. And we're going to see from what Jesus said, Peter thinks he's talking about death at this point. So look what Peter says in verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? See the word now again? Where I'm going, you can't follow me now. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you what? Now I will do what? Lay down my life for you. If you're going to die, I'm going to die. See, he's thinking of death. He says, I'm going to die. I'll, I'll die for you. You don't have to worry. Now, he makes his vow. I will die for you. I think Peter has good intentions. Peter always has good intentions. 
So I'll die for you. But that's not what Jesus wants him to do. Jesus doesn't want Peter to die for him. He wants Peter to what? To love. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? See, where Jesus is going, he's going to the cross. And in God's plan, that's how it has to happen. Jesus alone has to die on the cross for our sins. No one else can do that. That's what makes Jesus very unique in this situation. Not Peter. Peter will die later. You know, he'll die upside down. Peter says, no, right now I'll die with you. I'll die for you, you see. So Jesus pushes back. He's not going to allow Peter to get away with that. And look what Jesus says in verse 38. Will you lay down your life for my sake? I think he says it like this. You think so? Really? I'll die for you, Jesus says. Really? And he just busts Peter's balloon. Because look what he says at the end of verse 38. Peter said, Lord, at the end of verse 38, Most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow. So you have denied me three times. By three o'clock this morning, now let's assume that they've eaten their meal, it's about nine o'clock at night. Six hours later, three in the morning, when the rooster crows for the third time, within six hours, Peter, I'm going to let you know. Six hours from now, you're going to deny me three times. Die, you say? Deny, I say. Okay, so, now, in light of that, what do you think Jesus means when he says, where I'm going, you can't go? What do you think the answer is at this point? Death. Death on the cross at this point. Okay? If you're not with me now, you'll never be with me. Now guess what? When he says that, Peter's going to deny him. That shuts Peter's mouth completely. He's dumbfounded. He can't say another word. You'll never hear him speak another word except when he denies Jesus three times. And then Jesus will come back after he's resurrected and he'll say to Peter, do you love me three times? And if you do, guess what you need to do? Feed the sheep. You need to love the saints. But Peter now is just dumbfounded. And what he says disturbs the apostles greatly. I think that when Jesus says to Peter, look, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times, it's possible that the other ten apostles might be thinking, this is the guy that's going to betray me. Because they think Judas has gone out to do what? Yeah, to take care of supplies or help poor people. It's very possible they think Peter's the one who's, who's going to betray Jesus. So anyway, that ends the dialogue with Peter. Okay, so because they're disturbed, Jesus has to give them all a word of encouragement. Look at verse one of chapter fourteen. He says, "Let not your heart be troubled." Stop worrying. Hey, look, stop worrying. Stop fretting, he says. Uh, he goes on to say, You believe in God, believe also in me. Which can mean your your fear must be morphed into faith. You know. Uh, you believe in God, believe also in me. And this can be in the Greek it can be a question. Do you believe in God? 
Yes, Lord. Well, then you should believe in me. It can be done that. It can be, it can be translated as a command. Believe in God. Believe also in me. See, well, we don't know how it should be translated. And there are different ways of translating it. But what he says is, don't be fearful. Rather, be faithful. Trust. See, that's what he's saying here. And then verse 2, he said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now, we all heard that verse before. What in the world does that mean? I've heard Jimmy Swaggart in the old days just say, Just build my mansion next door to Jesus and tell the angels I'm coming on home and someday yonder. Yeah, you've heard that? If that was good theology, I would say amen. Uh, so what does it mean, uh, in my Father's house are many mansions? Well, that phrase, the Father's house, is mentioned one other time in John's Gospel, so I guess that would be important to find out how Jesus used it, wouldn't it? So I want you to take your Bible and go over to John chapter 2. Stay here, because we'll, we'll come back. And look how Jesus uses that phrase the first time and the only other time in John's Gospel. So look at verse, chapter 2 and verse 16. Jesus said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my what? Father's house a house of merchandise. So there's the only other time the phrase Father's house is mentioned by Jesus in John's Gospel. And in that case, Father's house means what? The temple. Now we know that Jesus has condemned the current temple. He's cleansed it, right? So he might not, not be talking about that temple. So what temple is he talking about? He's still talking about a temple. Well, there are two temples that I think that he could be referring to. This is why it's not so easy to figure out these verses. One is the heavenly temple. Remember Isaiah, chapter 6, he has a vision. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And there were seraphim and, you know, all this. That's where the Lord says, you know, who will speak for us and who will go and... Isaiah says, go for me. So there is a heavenly temple. But also, the church is referred to as the temple. Five or six times, the church is called the temple of God. Twice in 1 Corinthians. In Ephesians, it's called the temple of God. Several times, the church is called the temple of God. So, we're not sure you know, what he's talking about at this point. Which temple? But he said, in my father's house... There are many mansions. Now, uh, that's a very poor translation. I like it. Sounds good when you read it, but it doesn't really uh, do justice to the translation. So, to the text. So, it should be in my father's house are many residences, many places to live. Okay. Now, uh, who lives in the temple? Like who lives in the temple? I think a priest may have lived in these own homes. But most priests lived in their homes. Yeah, that's God's house. Didn't he call it his father's house? Who lives in that house? I would say God lives in the house. That's what the Jews believe. God lived right there in the temple. Right? Even in the Old Testament, 
God told the Jews to build a little tabernacle and he would come and dwell with them whenever they stopped. That's where God lived. They didn't live there. Solomon builds a temple and God's presence comes down in the temple. That's God's house. That's where he lives. Not We don't live in the temple. God lives. That's where it's his residence. He lives in the church. I don't live in the church. Do you live in the church? No, I don't think I live in the church. We are the temple of God, aren't we? We're the temple of God individually, and guess what? God lives in us. The church is the temple of God, and God lives in the midst of the church, the scripture says. So the temple usually refers to God's residence. And he says, I'm gonna he says, I'm gonna go in my father's house are many mansions in verse two. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now look at this. I go to prepare a place for you. Now the in indication is that God is going to go, Jesus is going to go into his father's house. And that he, remember when Jesus was 12 years old? Parents found him in God's house on earth. Indication is God is going, Jesus is going to go up into the temple. He's going to go with God through his ascension. His death, resurrection, and ascension. And when he gets there, he says he's going to do something. Look what he says. I will go and prepare a place for you. Now, what do we assume when we read that? That he's preparing a place for us in heaven? Is that what we normally assume? Well, I know he's going to heaven. I know when he's going to heaven, he's going to prepare a place. But is the place that he's preparing for us in heaven, or is he doing the preparation in heaven? But he's preparing another place for us. Very difficult passage of Scripture. Well, the same concept is found over in Deuteronomy. So I want to show you one other passage before we finish this out. Okay? Because this is the same language that is used. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. And go to Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is the exact same language found in the Old Testament when Moses leads God's people to the promised land. Taken almost verbatim out of that. So when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 1, go toward the end of the chapter and find verse 33. Deuteronomy 1, 33. <clears throat> So what we have here is we have Moses speaking to the children, and he says, you know something, you don't believe God. You just don't, you just don't believe God. Uh, the Lord, and that's at the end of verse 32, the Lord your God, look at verse 33, who went in the way before you. Now I want you to remember that phrase, the way, because you're going to see it again. A couple words that you need to remember from this passage. Number one is the way okay, before you. To search out a place for you. To pitch your tents. And to show you the way you should go. In the fire by night. And in the cloud by day. So what we have here is that in the Old Testament, Moses says that God is showing them or leading the way to a place where they will pitch their tents. And that place is the promised land. That's where God's taking them. 
He's taking them out of Egypt to the promised land. And he's leading the way. And in the meantime, guess what? They're going to be in that desert for 40 years and have to live and follow. They're going to follow the fire by night, the pillar of fire by night. They're going to follow the uh, cloud by day. And God's going to lead the way all the way to the promised land. Okay? So he's prepared a land for them in the future, the promised land. So when you look at back in John's Gospel, now look there, it's very interesting how Jesus uses similar language. Uh, Jesus says, now I am going to the Father's house, and I am going to prepare a place for you. And I think the place that he's preparing for them is the promised land, the future kingdom. Okay? Now that's, that's just an option here. But that's what I think he's talking about. So look what he says in verse 3. If I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So now you see two words there that deal with direction. The first word is the word what? Go. If I go, okay, now so he's going to go, and I'm assuming he's going to die and go to heaven, right? <coughs> then look what he says he's going to do. There's a second word. That's what? He's going to come back. Well, this is referring, I think, to the second coming, isn't it? And then wherever he is, that's where we're going to be. Well, he's going to set up his kingdom, so I guess that's where we're going to be in the kingdom. So I don't think he's talking about heaven. I think he's talking about coming back, setting up the kingdom, and that's where he's going to be and we're going to be. In fact, you know what else? God's going to be there too. Scripture says that in Revelation 22. And then look at verse 4. And where I go, now he's going to talk about right now, where I go and the way you know. I've talked about these kinds of things before. You should know this. Okay? And where is he going to go? He's going to go to heaven. How does he get there, by the way? First he has to what? Die. And then what? Does he go to heaven immediately when he dies, or does something else have to happen? And he's going to be raised. And that's when he really goes up, and they're watching him go up. So he's going to go. He said, you should know all this. Now look what Thomas says. <clears throat> Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know. And how can we know the way? That phrase, way. Lord, we do not know. Jesus said what? You know. What does Thomas say? We don't know. Now, who's right? <laughs> well, Thomas should know, but he doesn't know. So, it tells you that... Jesus is talking, and guess what? The first person, Peter, doesn't know what he's talking about. He can't figure out what Jesus is talking about. Now, Jesus starts talking about going to heaven and the way, and guess what? Thomas says, what? What are you talking about? Isn't it amazing how Christians have it all together? We understand it all, don't we? Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. Thomas doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, so look what he said. Lord... We don't know. Now, there's a contradiction if there ever was one. Jesus said, you do, and he said, we don't. Okay. And how can we know the way? How can we know the way? Now, remember what we just saw back in Deuteronomy. Jesus said to him, look, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am eternal life. No one comes to the Father except 
through me. Without the way, there's no going. You just be going in circles. Without the truth, there's no knowing. Jesus is the way. You can be sure if you follow him, you'll get to your destination. He's the, he's, he's the way to go. He's the truth. Follow him, you'll know the truth. And he says, I am the life. I am eternal life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I'm going to throw something out. This is pretty controversial, but I'm going to throw it out for you anyway. You don't care, do you? At this point. It's my last Sunday anyway, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. For Jesus to get to the Father and stay with the Father, he not only had to die, yet, something else had to happen. What happened to happen? The resurrection. That's the way to the Father. So if Jesus has to be raised, why do we assume that he's talking about when we die, we're going to go right to heaven? Now, we may go right to heaven when we die, but I'm just saying, that's not what this passage is talking about. Okay, that's not what this passage the way God got Jesus got to go to the Father was he had to die and then what? Be raised. And guess what he's saying to us? If you want to get to the Father, you have to die and what? Be raised. There's a resurrection. That's why I think he's talking about the kingdom of God on earth in the future. When he comes back, I'll receive you to myself. Where I am, there you will be. That's where God is going to be. God and Jesus are going to be there. Scripture says at that point, there'll be no temple in the New Jerusalem. It's not that we're going to go to heaven when Jesus comes back. Heaven's going to come down to us when Jesus comes back. And he's going to set the kingdom of God up. And guess what we have to do? The dead in Christ are going to be what? Raised. And that's how we're going to see God in that future kingdom. So I believe that this particular passage right here is talking about the future kingdom. Jesus is up in heaven right now, and he's preparing a future kingdom for us. A new Jerusalem, which is going to come down, and we're going to inherit. But we have to follow Jesus' way of doing that. Now, when you get to 7 through 11, which is the third part of this discussion, and I'll deal with this next week because of our time, it says this. Jesus said, if you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you will know him. And you've seen. Okay, now there's that clear teaching right there. So obviously, what, what's he talking about when you read that statement? you have any idea? I have no idea what he's talking about. And guess what? Neither does Philip. Look what he said. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. Then it'll be sufficient. And Jesus says, Philip, what's wrong with you? Don't you understand what I'm saying? What are you talking about? Well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That doesn't even make sense, does it? Philip has no idea what's going on. Does that, you think that, that, that helps Philip? That answer, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Does it help you by saying, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father? No, but it doesn't, does it? Because these are very confusing words. You know when they're going to understand it? We're going to find out in chapter 14... They're going to understand it after he ascends and he sends the Holy Spirit. And then their eyes are going to be open and they're going to start saying, oh, now we're starting to figure it out. Now we're starting to understand. The temple that, though, the temple might be the church. 
And Jesus and his Father are going to dwell in the church. Scripture says. Maybe that's the temple he was talking about. And that's why they start preaching about the church. Once Jesus ascends. And when was John written, by the way? 95. What's happened to the Jewish temple? It's been gone for 25 years. So when John, when, when we have the mention of the temple and the that, we're in, that God's going to dwell in a temple, in their minds, guess what temple they're talking about? Temple of the church. See how they're starting to think? So that's what's happening. And so we're going to pick it up next week, and we're trying to figure out all this. And if you're confused now, you haven't seen nothing yet. <laughs> it's very confusing. It's not, it's not as easy. What I want to say is it's not as easy as many people make it to be. It's just not. That's why the apostles are totally confused. Even after Jesus is raised from the dead, they are still totally confused. They think they're seeing a ghost. Thomas won't believe. Even after Jesus is raised from the dead, Peter and the disciples go back fishing. They say, we're going to get out of here. We're going to go back to our fishing business. They are not committed at that time. They do not know what's going on. They are totally confused. Scripture says in Matthew that he appeared to them, to the eleven, and some doubted, even after the resurrection. It's not until the Holy Spirit is given that things begin to crystallize and things begin to make sense. So what I wanted to say at this point is that Jesus here is talking to the apostles before his death. They're not getting him. They're not going to really get it until the Holy Spirit is given. And that's what the rest of chapter 14 is about. About the giving of the Holy Spirit and how everything then will be clarified. And there won't be confusion anymore. Now, what we have is we have had Peter talk up, we've had Thomas talk up, and next week we're going to see Philip talks up. They speak up. There's eight others who don't speak up. They have better sense than these. They don't speak up because it's very confusing. So anyway, that's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, I thank you that we can deal with hard texts, texts that we've heard all of our lives and make assumptions on. And uh, I'm not above saying, Lord, to you in front of this group, these are hard sayings. And they're not as clear as many people want them to be. And I don't think we would have been the exception. Had we been at that last supper and heard these teachings. And Lord, we have to really be careful when we're dealing with your text because we can be so glib. We can just quote verses as if we know what they mean when maybe we don't. We have your word, an inspired word, a word that we say is inerrant without error and fully trustworthy. Help us to treat it that way and not be casual with it. Help us to study and dig and do whatever it takes to find the meaning of the text. And even then, sometimes, Lord, we have to throw our hands up and say, we're just not sure. So, Lord... Uh, Help us this week as, as we look over the text again and again 
And as I study, help me uh, try to understand these verses. Very important words that Jesus gave to the disciples. His final words on earth to his disciples. Help us to take it to heart. Help us to realize, despite all the controversial portions of this text, which seem to confuse Peter and Thomas, there's one truth that's crystal clear. Between now and the time you set up the kingdom, we're to do something. We're to love each other. So help us not to focus our attention on all these peripheral issues and focus our attention on doing the one thing that you commanded us for this new age in which we live. Help us to love one another. In Christ's name, amen.